0: Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who have made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to entertain and enlighten. And this week we are joined by Emma Forrest, writer, director, mum, sometimes celibacist, who is here to talk about her most recent memoir and her experiences with marriage, celibacy, monogamy, and all things sex, Busy Being Free. Emma Forrest, are you ready for your completely binary quiz, Desert Island Vaginas? Sure, why not? Hit me. (laughs) Okay, number one, medication or meditation?
1: Uh, I think it's really important for me anyway that they go together, hand in hand, intertwined. Yeah, not one without the other.
0: And do you and you do talk about your finding of medication to support your mental health in the first memoir? Do you do is is meditation something that's quite new for you, or have you been doing that?
1: No, I've been doing TM for about a
0: decade, I think. What is TM? Is it basically with a mantra? Yeah, it's
1: transcendental meditation, and you get when you train, you get assigned your own personal mantra um, that no one else has. You keep it inside your head, which is kind of perfect.
0: And I've been kind of given a a breath by, by a a guru, actually my father works with once, but, and it wasn't that we shouldn't really share it with other people, but there was a sort of suggestion with, with a, with a a chant or a, or a, you know, a, a a mantra that you've been given with, with Transcendental. Is, is there a kind of suggestion that you should keep it to yourself? No, you have to,
1: otherwise you explode. It's (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. <chill.
0: laughs> Try it. We'll
1: see. Yeah.
0: And there is the humor that is all scattered throughout <laughs> your books. I mean, honestly, Emma, with your books, I find them so one minute I'm crying and the next minute I'm in fits of giggles. So this is going to be a great that's working. Thank you. <laughs> uh, next question monogamy or one night stands?
1: I think they both have their place, like meditation and
0: medication.
1: I think um they can uh, have
0: their correct moment in time and you have explored both, which we are going to come back to in just a little bit. next question menstruation or menopause now, and this is desert island distance is, of course the answer is probably neither, but I'm really interested in what stage you're at uh
1: i well, I may possibly foolishly think I'm nowhere near menopause, but I probably am without. No. <laughs> it, and I say that as someone who is constantly surprised by their period, just like the worst, keep my, my inability to do mathematics extends to my menstrual cycle. So I probably <laughs> will be as surprised by the arrival of menopause as I am every month. By my period. Uh, we
0: Emma, shall see. You keep, do you keep track of your periods? Do you not use the, uh, the Moody app?
1: No, I don't use that because that's them sucking your data out to control your life, right? You're not meant to have that. You're meant to delete it. Well, I'm, Ameri- I come back and forth between America. It's to do with since um, they overturned Roe v. Wade, you're meant to delete that app ASAP from your phone um, because it could legally be used against you. Um, but... Do I
0: keep track? I try to, but I'm so bad at math that I get it wrong. So Mm. there you go. Just coming back to the thing around the the Moody app, and let's just not let's move it away from Moody, but from all menstrual tracking apps. I remember when that major suggestion was coming out to get off the apps immediately. I mean, I would assume, Emma, that at your age, you're not planning to have more children um it doesn't mean that have to, having to choose to have a termination would be off off the cards would they would they actually legally have to give data to government sources it has been
1: used against women before and could be used against them again and i mean for what it's worth i don't know that i'm not going to have more children i am to my surprise i went and got checked and i am still fertile so if I wanted to, I could, um, I don't feel like it's something I massively want to do, but, um, options are pleasant in all contexts you
0: know? yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 as I I think that's absolutely right and I think I'm so sorry for assuming that as you you've got your your daughter that and there'd be a gap no, but well, of course I assume, anything I assumed
1: it? yeah but yeah I assumed it but then I mean that's interesting we digress uh but I've definitely felt guilt this is an interesting digression um at my Age 45, you read a lot of pieces from women my age and about their struggle with wanting to conceive and infertility. And when I went in the last few months to get checked and and found out I was still like bizarrely fertile, there was not a shame but a guilt in the idea of like, wow, so many women would give up just about anything to have this option. And I'm it's not something I want and I'm just going to let it sort of wither, as it were, on the vine. I did have a pang of guilt about that, even though it isn't feel like I don't feel like
0: it's something I want. Yeah, you know, it's hard, but I think that that, you know, everyone does have different experiences in life. And I think that your being fertile at 46 does confirm that you if you were put on a desert island now, you would be menstruating and not menopausing. If you have you thought much about HRT and whether or not you would use HRT, or you yes, to see well, if it comes well, in? well,
1: to swing back to um, the Trump of it, which, as you know, is a theme in my memoir, uh, the first thing a lot of us did, seen into the future when he was elected, was get IUDs because we knew that the Republicans had backed him in order to push through the judges they could to overturn Roe v. Wade. So, um, you know, the idea that they would come for abortions, a lot of us were prepped for from the moment he was elected. Um, So I had an IUD fitted when he was elected, because that lasts for 10 years. And I just went to have it checked here now that I live in London. It's a copper IUD, and they did suggest that when I do come to change it, I would consider changing to a hormonal one that will help with menopausal or premenopausal symptoms. So
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The one with the progesterone in. I think that's a really good idea. And I've got lots of women around me that have managed their menopause using that and then a bit of estrogen when 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 they need it. Just so you know, Emma, I don't want to scare you or anything, but I'm a copper coil baby. Yeah. So coming back to the one night stands question. now I understand what you're saying. I was like,
1: wait, baby, like, you mean you're a fan of it? I was like, oh, shoot. Okay, good info. Great info. Thanks for
0: that. So when you're ready to get the one with the hormone in, Mm. I'd strongly recommend it because I know a lot of people like me that are (laughs) coil babies. Thank you. There I was just so enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) Next question, brief or G-string?
1: Uh, again, I'm sorry to be dull, but I think they both have their place. Um, I like—I must say—like Cardi B, I am a fan of skin-tight jumpsuits, and then I would certainly say a g-string. Um, and with my '50s dresses, you want to go full method and have full '50s briefs, right? I do, anyway.
0: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I'm just so thrilled that you said that. The last like three million people I've interviewed have all said brief. That's not true. There have obviously been some some people that have been advocating for the G-string, but I agree. Both, both. Final question. Sexting or selfies?
1: I, is, is selfie like a nude selfie or is it just any selfie?
0: I think let's go with nude. I, would
1: feel incredibly, unbelievably self-conscious about sending someone a selfie. Like, to me, that reeks of humiliation and narcissism. But strangely, a nude selfie (laughs) means something else in your mid-40s. Like, that is completely different and to my mind reads differently. So I would say, for now, with context, that
0: I'm so pleased that you brought that up because there was a moment in your book that I wasn't going to ask you about, you've just given me a great opportunity to mention it, where you're dating someone younger than you. This is this is in your second, your second memoir, which we're going to talk about busy being free, and that you're dating a man who's significantly younger than you, and you send him a nude selfie, as far as I remember, and 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 his response was a bit like. I kind of get these all the time, the beginning of the pandemic. I was like inundated with them. And you say something really beautiful, which I'm going to paraphrase, which is that what was kind of break breakthrough for you as a woman in her 40s was kind of rigueur for this like sort of like yeah, late 20s. I, I think you said he got
1: sent so many nudes from people he'd been with during the pandemic that he could have opened an art gallery with them. <laughs> Whereas but, but what's important in that chapter is that. I kind of go, well, I don't really give a fuck if you want it or not. I still enjoy taking them and I still like sending them to you. You don't even have to admire them. I admire them.
0: Yeah, within three minutes, we are basically already touching on on sexual stuff. But I've also really enjoyed reshaping the quiz in order to be supportive of you in that. Do you have any thoughts at all about why, as a woman, you are so much more comfortable writing about it than talking about it?
1: Anything that we are talking about, um, I'm comfortable with. I have a very clear understanding of why I can write anything, um, but the painful or difficult, if I'm talking to you about it, it's not difficult for me. The difficult things I can only write about because it's the writing that makes it safe for me. Um, and I'm always really happy if someone all right, I've had many letters over the years from the first memoir saying your work changed me, saved me, pushed me to do this, made me realize that. And that's beautiful. With absolute honesty, my primary concern is making it safe for me first. It's sort of the equivalent of, you know, the flight attendant saying, put on your own oxygen mask before you attempt to put on your child's is that um, the writing process makes difficult things less painful for me if it helps other people that I've written them that's wonderful but I don't have that same superpower when I'm talking rather than writing so even if it were to be of use to listeners in a in a broadcast setting whether that's television or radio or podcasting um, is too difficult for me. So I, I don't do it. And also I'm not good at it. I know I'm a good and sometimes great writer, but that takes marinating in the feeling to get to the words, percolating with the bad feeling to get to the other side. And I don't have that same skill. There's a reason you don't see me on television or on radio is I'm I'm not I don't it's not something I'm confident with I don't think I'm particularly articulate um, unless I'm writing and I'm not embarrassed about that I, I don't think you have to be good at everything but part of uh, holding back is my own safety and part of making things safe is knowing I'm choosing the right words to name the experience and I don't have that same confidence off the cuff.
0: Would you say that? a great, you've you've used the word safety, would you suggest that a great deal of your more personal works and not necessarily the films that you've made, but the memoir and other pieces of writing uh, in the press that actually it's been a journey to find safety?
1: Well, when I started, um, when I was first published, I was a teenager and I was writing a About my life column, age 16 in a national newspaper in the Sunday Times, at a time, again, my maths is so bad, but I'm I can't remember what year that someone else do the maths for me. If I'm mid-40s now, what year I was 16 and writing in the Sunday Times wasn't, as we know, a great time of respect for young women, you know, particularly teenage girls in the public eye. So I would highly suggest that that was not a safe space in which to be writing about myself, um, partly because I wasn't a good enough writer yet. Like, I, I take responsibility for that. Sort of like being a tattoo artist, you need skin to practice on. And with writing, you need life lived to get better. That's why sometimes I'll see, I'm not going to name names, but I'll occasionally see a memoir by like, uh, you know, someone in their mid. 20s and it's not just that the life experience doesn't line up with my own because I'm middle aged it's just that they haven't written enough to be great writers and I don't really think you should personally it's all personal but I don't think you should be naming examining sifting through the difficult and painful things if it's not great art.
0: I completely agree with you and 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 like you I sometimes struggle to know whether or not it's because of my subjective view that I'm much more interested in women who've lived a bit because I have, or whether or not, you know, I, I don't know, we'd have to probably ask some some, some millennials whether or not they, they Look, are. Look, sometimes
1: through the lens, particularly of fiction, I remember, was it last year or the year before that Raven Leilani published Lustre, which is a very sexual book. She was in her 20s when she wrote that as a novel. It's not a memoir. And it is an astonishing debut. Not just in her uh, prose skill, but in her psychological acuity. And I don't know if it was because it was um, her feelings through the lens of fiction that she got to that place or if she's just sort of a once in a lifetime genius. But yeah, that, that I knew for sure, I couldn't have written something at that level in my twenties.
0: Yeah. Maybe it maybe it's to do with, um, writing about sex. Cause, um, Anna is Nin wrote about her sexual experiences very early on in her life. Didn't she? And they were really fascinating.
1: They were fascinating. Weirdly. I recently reread them. Um, because someone wants to adapt them as a TV series. And they are interesting and they are repetitive.
0: Interesting. interesting. Because I think
1: things can be groundbreaking and important um, and not necessarily, I don't know, I don't know how much they they stand up as a whole body of work, but they are undeniably important.
0: Yeah. Coming on to your personal memoirs, busy being free Your most recent one you describe coming into a period of your life when you are demanding to be the ocean which I thought was really beautiful Mm. that you no longer wanted to be judged for your bikini body and so that at a stage when other women were potentially potentially starting to contort themselves more and more physically and emotionally to stay desirable you said I'm not playing which is I would suggest another part of this um, drive to find your own safety. I think just to kind of, to put a bit of a framework around this most recent memoir, I think we do need to wind the clock back a little bit and talk about your first memoir, which was called Your Voice in My Head, which I think was really the beginning of your journey of self-seeking, maybe self-healing. And I would suggest also hold some of the answers to this more recent imposed state of celibacy. And I think I, we're not going to talk about them in too much detail, mostly because we don't have time. But there are experiences within that memoir, Emma, which are could I would suggest could be des- described as traumas, that you talk about your coming of age not always being, I would suggest, in the most respectful way. Do you feel at all that your celibacy was just a grown-up decision or that it was like hang on a second I've had all these cuz I I re, what I took from it I and mean, we talk about me was I was like oh wow that's really interesting cuz my earlier year experiences sexually were quite traumatic and what would it be to reset if I reset would I come back into a sexual relationship with myself and others as me right am I am I Am I pivoting in my sexual relationships from a point of trauma? That, that was kind of the question. And did you see celibacy as a way to reset yourself?
1: Well, okay, let's start with your voice in my head. For sure, there are many of the relationships I was in, because I didn't have one night stands. I had like obsessive romantic relationships on the most part once I... Started dating. Definitely my first few sexual experiences as a teenager were unpleasant. Um, unfortunately, I think that's the case for most women that I know. And um, if I had to guess, I'd say you probably don't start having good sexual experience. It would be the freak of nature who has female who has good sexual experiences from the start. I've never heard of that. Like I have never heard of that, and that is only going to get harder for women, for for very young women with the total absorption of hardcore pornography into mainstream culture. I know I'm digressing, but the fact that when I moved back to London and was traveling the underground with a small female child, I would have to explain what the hell she was looking at in the ads for Boohoo and Pretty Little Things. And, you know, imagery that is quasi-pornographic. There's a whole discussion to be had that porn is fine if the sex workers are being compensated fairly, treated fairly, rewarded fairly, um, everything's consensual and they're being paid directly, but you should have the choice not to have to look at it if you don't want to. And I really object to ha- to having to sort of redirect a small child away from that imagery. Anyway, that was a total digression. Um, but no, the first sexual experiences for a young woman are generally in exchange for being told you're attractive. It's a deal. It's, it's like, how much will you take as a teenage girl in exchange for being told you're not hideous and possibly even beautiful? Um, that was my experience. And then if you can get to a place of feeling beautiful and attractive of your own volition in your own soul, you can choose the sex you want to have with who you want to have, when you want to have it, because that's nothing to do with how you feel about yourself. And then it becomes great. Um, But that happened to me from 25 onwards. So there's probably almost a decade of pretty unimpressive slash uh, unfortunate slash disturbing sexual experiences um, but then yes in terms of the monogamy um, I've been married I've been with one person five, six, seven, like for about seven years and there and I had only been with that person not only that i had only fantasized about that person from the moment I met them which was unusual um, I never had a sexual fantasy of, that didn't involve that person and that was actually, I think, the first thing I was trying to reset was how to have sexual fantasy without including the person who'd, uh, by whom I felt heartbroken, who also felt heartbroken by me, you know, to be fair, when you're talking about divorce, um, that probably the film, one of the films I've seen the most times in my life, at least once a year is Mahon and Drive. And that's sort of a key beautiful, horrifying scene where Naomi Watts is masturbating and crying at the same time over the woman who's broken her heart. Um, and I guess that's what you're, you're trying to get away from and the reset I was working on and it succeeded. And if you read the book, you know that probably one of my first sexual fantasies after my ex-husband was about the octopus from My Octopus Teacher, so you never know where it's going to take you. Um, definitely took me for a period before it became about human men and women into, I guess, something kind of Wiccan. Like it just became about the moon and the thunderstorms and, and, and the, the sunrise and the sunset and the expanse of ocean. Like those were the things that would make me feel sexual excitement.
0: At the end of your first memoir, Your Voice in My Head, totally had your heart broken I hope that's not putting words in your mouth by the the gypsy husband people can uh, read the book and find out who that is and he and in a pretty obsessive state desperately trying to work out whether he loved you I mean basically it's kind of raw grief on page you know of the loss of, of a romance and the other thing that in that book is that you have this ongoing relationship that is quite devastatingly interrupted with your psychiatrist, therapist, who um, unfortunately dies to cancer. So you've kind of lost two anchors in a quite a short space of, of time. And you're going around asking people whether or not they think your gypsy husband actually really loved you. And I, I mean, I've just, I've been there. I've been there with relationships where I'm like, you know, you just can't, what, what, what happened? And this is a separate relationship to the one you were referring to just now with your, with your real husband, where you had to untangle your emotions and physical fantasies from him. This is from someone you dated in a serious relationship for a year or so. But you, you spoke to the therapist at the time or before you, before you'd met the gypsy husband about relationships. And he'd suggested that you potentially should go and get some help in a 12 step program, With with love addiction and your response in the book was, aren't women always love addicts? Emma, what did you mean by that? And do you still believe it's true?
1: I think you can't quite underestimate how deeply it shaped my thinking to come of age uh, as as an adolescent. Exactly when the Monica Lewinsky scandal was breaking, I think that's very very embedded under my skin um, that a very young woman's longing and lust, the way she was treated um, by someone she believed, was led to believe loved her, literally led to, to the downfall of an American president right at the age when you're trying to locate the volume control on your sexuality. So I think that never quite left my head in terms of how i see female you know love addiction um female sexuality and 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 concepts of of romance and um also i talk about it i think in the opening of busy being free and it, it leads on pretty neatly from that The idea that I chose always obsessively men I would want to be like. Men who would remonstrate with the screen at a packed movie theatre during the film if they didn't like how the movie was going. Men who would go topless to a 24-hour grocery store at one in the morning to get ice cream the subliminal feeling that I could get that courage and that power making love to them and the sort of pain of, of realizing what I'd all accepting what I'd always suspected was that it doesn't work that way. And that I would have, if I wanted to be those things I had to do it myself. And I think all women have versions of that moment because it's easier And less painful to believe that you could get that courage through choosing the right well, man or woman, depending on your sexuality.
0: We're going to take a short break. Before we do, I just want to let you know that this podcast is produced by the female founded production company, Pineapple Audio Production. Pineapple, create groundbreaking podcasts from concept through to your headphones at the very highest level of audio. Their international teams support independent podcasts like mine, The Happy Vagina, as well as major brands like the BBC and Grazia. And they are super passionate about helping young people into the audio industry. To find out more, go to pineappleaudioproduction.com or check them out on Instagram at pineappleaudioproduction. I mean, my mum was, you know, a, a very active radical feminist in the second wave of feminism, so I shouldn't have... Have had these messages, but I did, which is the message of kind of being saved somehow. That actually, I mean, how can you not be a love love addict and kind of be kind of like you know, hands in the air, pick me up, save me? When that's all the messages you're getting given through every single cultural feed that's coming into your zone. You know, today we've got so many different other outlets you can choose to follow people on social media that don't continue that message. But when we were young, um the movies that we were being fed, the romances were all about a woman being saved by a man and well, therefore a man yeah. being saved by a woman. I mean, that's both a, happen that's at the same a, time. That's
1: personality type though and I completely accept what you're saying but for me, it was the flip. It was like, my power will come from saving damaged men. The opposite. I think you, a woman tends to be one or the other.
0: That's so interesting. At the end of, at the end of um, uh, your voice in my head, after you've got over the gypsy husband. And one of the things that he'd said to you quite a lot was, are you mine? And you said, yes, I am. And one of the, the closing moments is, is in your head. He's saying, are you mine? And Emma, you say, no, I'm mine. And I just thought it was such a, a beautiful moment. And I thought, she's got it, she's got it. So I have to be completely honest with you. I think because I hadn't followed. It's not like I like I didn't stalk you in between that. I didn't know that you'd gone and got married. So when I started reading "Busy Being Free," I was, if I'm really honest, I was slightly surprised that it opened that a book about monogamy opened your 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 marriage. You know that you'd kind of gone off and got married in between. Because I was like, oh you mind? No, I mind." She's going to go off and find this life. But you did go off and and, and get married to someone. But
1: I met you know the person I believed was the love of my life. Although I believe we have several loves of our lives. Um, because I came to him whole, I came to him fixed, I came to him as myself. And he was drawn to me because I seemed powerful and full and happy in my own company. So then that's why when you get to Busy Being Free, I talk about post-divorce coming back to my real size, because I came to him full-sized. And so when you leave the marriage, you're Alice in Wonderland and you have to figure out, are you too small? Are you too big? Which is the size you were before?
0: And one of the ways that you as we've already touched on did that was by choosing to have a period of 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 celibacy and not being in relationship with with anyone except for yourself because obviously self-pleasure is is sex one of the things that made me really laugh is that in the book you say that uh when trump got into power you made a commitment from the moment he was inaugurated that you would stop having sex kissing and holding hands and swore that you would not relent this, uh, this celibacy until he was gone. Did you, I know you had a period of being celibate, did you stick to this commitment? Totally.
1: I didn't have sex for almost five years. I didn't date for almost five years.
0: So, okay, because I had, I did have these sort of visions of your election night party for when Biden right. got in, being I a mean, bit like a killing, I would killing roll, kittens party. No, no, no. I mean, I would love to <laughs> I was say being that like, that close it, off the
1: perfect cinematic um, moment would be the storming of the capitol i wish it had happened that night <laughs> but, but soon thereafter very soon thereafter yeah
0: so i mean we've kind of already touched on some of the reasons why you decided to take this this period out of being in relationship with with partners um and it being about reclaiming yourself after being in a a very deep and loving relationship with the man who is the father of your daughter and needing to detangle yourself, but also potentially reset yourself sexually back to who you were before some of your earlier year experiences. It it happens when you're coming to London and also the dreaded word during the beginning of lockdown. And you say something in the book, you say, I could feel every one of the men who had ever been inside of me and i just that really what was the process for you to get there because to me that's a very a very deep place to land to be able to a write about it but B, just even access it to, because one of the things that obviously happens for us when we have um, grief or trauma or just a you know, normal level of pain is that we black out in order to cope. So to be able to sit with that experience of these are the people that I have let share my, my body and, and, and be so accepting of it. I mean, what, I mean, really literally, what was the process? Did you write? Did you do therapy? What were the things that you did during that period that got you to that place? Well, I had a therapist uh, after my therapist who I'd written the book
1: about died. I had a different therapist who I'm still in touch with um, who had mentioned to me she had, um, as a Buddhist, methods of practicing for her own death in terms of a kind of sense memory way of feeling into it, into the future, um, into what it might feel like as part of her practice so that was in the back of my mind and then I think the key that turned the lock was the lockdown because that felt so much the proper lockdown that felt like extra time it felt like time outside time it felt like a wormhole in time to another dimension for me anyway um because I had the privilege of not being sick and not worrying about not going to work because I'd always worked at home. So it was for a lot of writers, although they may feel guilty about admitting it, an incredibly rich creative time. Um, And I don't know that I would have got to those places without being in the full lockdown. You know, because then you're in a lockdown inside a lockdown. You're in your sexual lockdown inside a global lockdown. In a small apartment, it was very fruitful. That's how.
0: So, did you literally use some of the techniques that the Buddhist or the therapist who, who, who had sort of a, a Buddhist practice to, to access that? No,
1: well, it came in a lot with making sure I was actually doing transcendental meditation twice a day. Like, we know if we do it twice a day for 15 minutes, you use the morning session to turn on the taps. And by the afternoon session, the idea is you turned turned on the tap so that the water would start running clear. So when you stay to the rigour of doing those two sessions a day, that was a big part of it too. So it's pretty easy not to do two sessions a day. It's pretty easy not to do one session a day, but yeah.
0: Do you you feel like you have made, like, do you feel that you, during this period of of celibacy, that you have... Actually, made your peace with all of the lovers that you may not have had peace with or had had left a kind of a bit of a a drawing pin in your shoe? I mean, the
1: interesting thing is that, yeah, you can get those peaceful resolutions, but you can also get agitated about things that, that actually didn't bother you that much in the first place. So I definitely got much crosser at someone I'd dated when I was 17 who had always been perceived as like a nice guy in the industry. And when I was left alone as a middle-aged person inside a pandemic in a flat, I was like, no, you weren't. And you were the, you were the enabler of some really bad men, not just because you didn't like physically partake in the bad things you do. They did. You held them up and admired them and repeated, I say in the book, repeated these terrible exploits and the terrible things that they said about women to me when I was 17 years old. And it's only in middle age that I was like, those repetitions were intended as a threat of how women get spoken about if they don't behave the way they're meant to. And that you can't win, that you can't be sexually free, or else guys are going to talk in the office in a really grotesque way. And then the nice guy in the office is going to repeat it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think we're kind of on on even more high alert to that as women, particularly with kind of, you know, the government now even bringing in laws to say that it's illegal to catcall a woman in the streets. When you've got that going on in the legislative domain, you start looking at some of your personal experiences and go, hang on a second, all those, you know, smacked asses or, boys at school misbehaving or whatever the thing is that was actually not okay and we've just spent most of our lives as women accepting that actually stuff that is borderline abusive whether it be bullying or a threat as you've just said or actually a sexual assault is just part of life and I think you know the, the, the key now is to navigate for all of us individually how we want to be with men, you know, and, 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 and learn that. What, what would you say are your greatest lessons that you've learned through this, this time of, 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 being celibate?
1: I think the age of consent should be raised. I can't, is it 16 across the yeah. UK? I yeah. think it should, I think it should be 18. That's a pretty pragmatic answer, but that's that's probably my easiest answer. Cause I wasn't ready and I don't think that I can't I haven't come across a sixteen-year-old girl who is.
0: So difficult, isn't it? Because the truth is is that girls are getting their periods earlier and earlier, which means their bodies are starting to create hormones that do sit in the kind of lust camp. Um, you know, you're you're having and and, and we've known that that young boys are obviously having sexual feelings quite early. It's hard to work out how to make it, it safe so that they don't then follow those and feel like they're doing something wrong. Like I had sex before 16 and I felt really ashamed of it because it was illegal. So then we hid it and that creates this kind of weird river yeah, of shame. I mean,
1: because the men, because I was working already, so the men I was involved with are all, all either older than me or massively older than me. I do just say, of course I had desires, but I think it's adults' job it's an adult's job to protect the little people from their desires, yeah, not yeah, yeah. enact them.
0: I completely agree with you. Um, so okay. So Emma's going to start a campaign to raise the the, the yeah. age of consent oh, She's got my backing. I'll be rallying the women to, to back you in that. Coming out of this age of celibacy, you committed dating app fraud, Emma. Well,
1: I didn't know that I was, Um You know, you have to put up your five pictures that best represent to someone flicking through who you are. And the most me picture in the world is this picture of me writing um, with a cat as a lumbar pillow, (laughs) Um, with a beautiful view beyond my desk and a beautiful dress on. And because it's so quintessentially me, it wasn't till like this young guy in Hackney mockingly wrote and said, what model is that computer? Jesus, I didn't know they saw it. But I looked and I was like, oh, wow, yeah, totally. This picture is, you know, at least 15, if not 20 years. Yeah, it was a 15-year-old picture. And it wasn't something I consciously did. It's just the picture that I always felt was my soul. You can't even really see my face. In it, so it wasn't about wanting to look young. It
0: was about wanting to look like me. I, and I take it you did not go out on a date with this this young shamer, did shaming not. you for using your, no. your pictures. And the next thing that you did was you had a a friend. This is so. I just thought this was so beautiful. You had a friend come over, a, a female friend come over, so you could take your clothes off and get some feedback on whether or not your your body was still okay. Yeah,
1: because nobody but my husband had seen it in a decade, and uh, yeah, she was she was happy with it. So I went ahead. In fact, it's even better than that. One mother from school came to look at me naked, while another mother from school watched my kids, so I could go on the date.
0: That's so amazing. And these are all, <laughs> these are all quite new friends for you because you've only just come yeah. back to London. Yeah, was one of the friends that came over. Was the person who came to look at you naked in *Dear of Armor*? No, although we
1: have seen each other (laughs) naked over the last 20 years, mainly because she's worn a lot of my, or several of my dresses for her premieres because we actually fit the same. So um, we have seen each other naked, but that was not the day, no.
0: She would be a woman that I would ask to come over and see me yeah. kid, it would definitely be someone like India. yeah <laughs> um, you know, I had so- her
1: read the book for the audio book because um sort of circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning I really hated reading my first memoir as an audio tape I hated it it upset me it didn't upset me to write the book it really distressed me to read it so with this one Indira and I are so similar I just asked her to do the audio and that would
0: Actually, I had wondered why you did that because I've got to tell you, Emma, that I absolutely loved, I loved Indies 2 of your second memoir. It's not that I'm, It's not. I'm not comparing you to each other. It's really important that she did a fantastic job and I get it. There's something about you two that's a bit similar. So actually it didn't seem so, you know, it's not like you asked Dolly Parton to read it for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, but... <laughs> but I, but, but, you know, I was like, I I I just want you to know, and I understand that you, it was potentially triggering or re-traumatizing to read over some of the stuff that is in that first memoir for you. But I want you to know that you are an exceptional reader. My and I Absolutely. I mean, I loved hearing... My god, voice I'm sure I absolutely loved it. So if there's any voice in your head today that tells you that you're not a good reader, that's not true. Go get yourself a voiceover really? agent immediately. Thank you very much. Thank immediately. You. Just don't take my jobs. Um <laughs> Emma, just um we're running out of time, but I do want to just briefly touch on a couple of things to do with your dating experiences because you did end up dating two younger men, didn't you? What what was that like for you? One younger man,
1: one younger man with whom um, I had ended up having, um, after I finished the book, a year and a half long relationship.
0: Okay, so I've got the guy with the horse, the guy with the horse, that was Q. Yeah, and then there was the one night stand. uh, Yeah. Okay, that was a one night stand. Okay, okay, okay. So you said that uh, he rebooted your sex life, and I just want you to know that I had a relationship around the same age as you with a man much younger than me, and it totally transformed my whole relationship with sex because I don't listen, like, who knows? I'd have to go and do like a kind of wide birth investigation and have sex with lots of young men. But my feeling is is that the generations coming through do have a very different relationship with 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 how they are with women. Would you say that's a generalization?
1: No, I mean not in my experience of sleeping with both those guys. I found them to be much more concerned about a woman's pleasure than anyone I've been with when I was a young person for sure, um, then it was sort of like you're meant to be grateful to have been chosen. Um, but they both cared very much. Um, and I've actually wondered if counterintuitively boys growing up with porn has maybe made them more concerned about more aware about women's pleasure. I'm not sure. It's crossed my mind. Um, uh, uh, and also, I have really good feelings about both of those guys. Like, the the one night stand I'm still in touch with, but we just text each other Sopranos discussions. Like, we both rewatched all of the Sopranos and we text each other like Sopranos memes and still do. Um, there's no sexual relationship. And with Q, we're still totally in touch. Um, like, he's one of my favourite... People are, so I'm also not used necessarily to having good relationships with men once the sex is over. I think what's of incredible significance, really important is that the age gap between me and Q, the man in the book who I ended up in quite a long relationship with, it's 16 years, which is either 15 or 16 years. And that's exactly the age when things started going wrong for me. Is when I started having sex and I didn't have agency at all. So I think that was a really magical number and part of the reset, actually.
0: Yeah. So, the, and then you describe some beautiful uh, moments in the book where, which we're not going to talk about now, but you are, people have got to go read it where you, you, instruct sexual activity that you want to happen to so my
1: specifications with my lighting my music you know yeah it's directing basically
0: which is so different to the first memoir where you go into some depth around uh self-harming during sex you know not just in sex but outside of sex too it, there is a beautiful quote about your book um A memoir about what it is to find oneself in the middle of your life at a bump in the road, about the romance to be found in leaving a marriage and starting out alone, about sex and celibacy. That is what this book is about. Do you have any tips for women who may be tuning in, who, whatever age they're at, who might be starting again?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think, look, I think for all women, who are sexually active, a set amount of time to yourself is a really good idea. Um, And again, the idea, if if you're going through divorce, if you're older, of freeing yourself from the things you you perceive yourself as having to do to keep being chosen for the team and just saying, I don't want to play this, not not for now, (laughs) Um, is very liberating. Just actively saying, this is not a game I choose to play. For this amount of time, um, is I think a
0: huge gift. Mm, mm, no, nobody, nobody, nobody gave me the option to sign up for the game in the first place. I'm like, and now I'm exactly. choosing not to. And any tips for anyone who might want to try sexting? Oh my
1: god, no! I think I'm terrible at it because as a as a talented writer, I am terrible at birthday cards, text which includes sex. Um, I'm really bad at emails like everyone who has to email with me before meeting me or text with me is just thinks I'm cold and disinterested when really all of my writing and joy is in the writing process. And I resent any writing that isn't my my writing itself. And that includes sexting. So don't take tips from me.
0: You can. Everyone can DM me. I'm really good at sexting. So (laughs) if you you want deep wisdom, DM (laughs) DM Emma. And if you want if you want sexting tips, I'm your girl. Final question for today: What makes your vagina happy today?
1: Azo A Z O. You have to import it from America or get friends to ship it. It is the instant reset to UTIs or thrush. And I was turned onto it by. A sex worker who became a friend. So again, another pragmatic answer.
0: How do you take it?
1: How do you think?
0: Orally? No. Or inside of your vagina? Yes. In- you yes, insert yes, it Because I mean, I guess because I think you know they try to tell you that drinking cranberry juice will get rid of a UTI. So. uh that I've tried. You know that
1: that that I think as a sensitive human, I'm also sensitive sexually. So when I'm in a sexual relationship, I have to be on guard against UTIs at all. I have explored this this topic. So yes, what makes my vagina happy is Azo.
0: Okay, great. Okay, Azo, everyone, go look it up. Thank you so much, Emma. Everyone, you need to go and listen to or buy and read Emma's books, Your Voice in My Head, which I know she's going to be shy that I'm going to say this, but I honestly think it is. Our generation, Sylvia Plath, The Bell Jar, I have been longing for a book that would be the voice of us in that respect. And I really do think it is that. It is not an easy read. it's painful, but it's so worth it. And then the next one, busy being free, which is, I would say more optimistic, and you can get them both pretty much everywhere and and you can also get them audible to listen to. Thank you
1: so, so, so much for having me.
0: That was Emma Forrest. I'm Mika Simmons. This is the Happy Vagina podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. And please do make sure that you subscribe, like, tell your friends about the podcast. We need and value your support. See you next week.